The Time of Our Lives, a short story by David Cook. I bought a ghost train. What? I bought a ghost train. You know, the ride you get at the fair at the amusement park. Who is this? It's me, Ron Anderson. We've been chatting on the internet, Facebook and stuff about the old days. Oh, Ronnie. It's Ron now. I told you before. Daniel Overton and Ron Anderson had been chatting over the internet, using Messenger and then WhatsApp, and in time joined by a few others from the olden days, as one of them called it. Another had suggested they'd had the time of their lives back then, and so the group was called The Time of Our Lives. Daniel thought it was a silly name, not just the sound of it, but the fact that it wasn't really that accurate. It all started when Ron posted a message saying, has anyone got any old pictures of where he used to live, John Maxwell Street? Demolished now for many years to make way for a collection of high-end fashion shops and three ugly office blocks. As it happened, Daniel had lots of photos from his Uncle Jack, who'd given them to him not long before he died. Pictures of the family, the streets that comprised their neighbourhood, fish and chip shops, bakers and butchers, the massive Victorian chapel, the old labour exchange, the stinky swimming baths, and even some of the yard where, for a few coins, you could rent a barrow for the day. That's how lots of people moved houses 60 years ago. So they struck up a cyber conversation, chatting about the good old days, clearly massaged by the passage of time. They both had a sentimental streak that surfaced in a yearning to go back. Just for one day, Ron had said. Just a day, Daniel agreed. It had been tough back in the 60s, but memory is a strange thing. Sure, they could both remember the hardships of life in the slums of an industrial working-class northern town. The outside toilets. Men, too poor to buy cigarettes, collecting discarded butts from the pavements to roll in thin cigarette papers later. Hand-me-down clothes. Unemployment. Many barely scraping a living. But these memories were easily submerged under happier times of weddings, street parties, happy Christmases and simpler things. Endless games of football. British Bulldog. Tiggy and exciting tennis matches played against a gable end. But what he wanted more than anything was to see his younger family, his extended family, now long gone, his grandparents and his grandmother, younger versions of aunties, uncles and cousins he spent many hours with, and the local characters. He could burst with longing as he daydreamed his way back to the early 60s. All lovely stuff. And then Ron had contacted him to tell him about his latest acquisition. Ron was a collector, normally of old records, teaspoons and medals. So a whole ghost train was something completely different. I called you, Ron had written, clearly too excited to spend time typing things out. It's an original, he'd begun. Hidden. Let the far end of the fairground, the bit that's never used, mainly storage and stuff. Uh, and the old ghost train? Daniel had asked. Yep, yeah. 
the actual ghost train that I went on as a kid. And I bet you did too. Oh, yeah, of course, Daniel has said. The truth was, his mother would never let him go on the ghost train. Today, she would have said something like, You're too sensitive, Danny. You've got too vivid an imagination as it is. You're a daydreamer. It'll haunt you. Today, she might have said stuff like that. But then she simply said, No. It's special, Dan. It's really special. And then Ron was laughing, and it was clear from the snorts and shudders that he was crying with laughter. You've got to come. You've got to have a turn. Just you and me. No one else. Just you and me. They were standing outside of the ghost train. It was shabby. Lots of the lights didn't work. But that didn't matter at all, Ron had said. He'd messed around with the electrics and borrowed a generator from one of his mates who ran most of the park. Told me I was mad buying this thing. But he didn't know. He didn't know. And then he burst out laughing again. It works. Are you ready for the time of your life? The best time of your life? Up on board. There's only one car. That's all we need. And he practically dragged down onto the ramp, where the single, rusted car sat waiting for them. Seated, Dan could see more closely that the ghost train had seen far better days. Paint was peeling. The flaps into the ghostly world were torn and misaligned. The boards and rails creaked as he settled into the dilapidated car. Ron turned on a switch, and the car lurched into motion. As he hopped back in, Daniel felt a, a dread sense of trepidation. The truth of it was, he'd been glad that his mother had been so adamant. Still, he was an old man now. He could manage one ride for the sake of Ron, if not himself. And then they were inside. Okay, the first skeleton to light up had given him a bit of a turn. The cobwebby thing that had tickled across his face had been reasonably effective, but the rest uh, sort of paled. He made the odd noise to show willing, but he noticed Ron was impervious to it all. He guessed Ron had been on the ghostly train quite a few times and was pretty seasoned. But it was more than that. Ron seemed to be waiting for something. He was alert, leaning forward, gripping the car's rail hard. And then they were out, out to the noise of a raucous crowd who hadn't been there before, to the sounds and lights of a fairground in full swing. And that hadn't been happening before. And stepping out of the pristine car into the blazing lights of the ghost train's frontage, to the vibrant colours and the smiles and smells of his younger life. None of them had been there before. Ron was beaming up at him. We're back, Dan. 1962, September, I checked. We're back. And suddenly they were dancing together. Forgotten for the moment was the impossibility of what had happened between starting the ghost train's journey and ending it. He was back. They pushed through the queue of parents and children, waiting to be frightened out of their lives. They pushed through the crowds, and Dan knew then that he was back into the time of his own. Three hours, and then we'll go back, said Ron. But no questions. Time for that later. I don't know how it worked or how long it lasts, but we're back. <laughs> <laughs>
I've done three hours and then went back. So we'll stick to that. Go back home, Dan. Go back and see it all again. Go on, off you go. Go and have the time of your life. And he did. Go back home. Dan, confused, bewildered, decided to follow Ron's advice. Time for that later. Time to try and understand how an antiquated ghost train can propel someone back in time, back to his early life and the people who populated it. He would simply accept it and get going. It was a two-mile walk up from the seafront where the fairground continued to blaze and blare away to his childhood neighbourhood in John Maxwell Street. He began to run, convinced that a lapse in concentration might make all this disappear, might make him wake up back in 2020. But running was impossible. There were streets to examine, to see the changes, the shops with old-fashioned fronts, streets that no longer existed. The town hall, a black stone, unsanded edifice. The park with its old shelter and smelly toilets on either side, to stand, stupefied, by the old railway bridges, marvelling at the three-tier arches which spanned the road. Then there were a few cars to peer at, old Fords, an Austin A60, and then a Vauxhall Victor, but barely a handful passed him. He smiled at the occasional trolley bus, recalling how the main routes in and around the town were adorned with electric wires. He reminisced to himself about these buses. Signs asking customers not to spit, wooden benches on the top floors. The streets were familiar, a long sea road to the town centre, but the shops were not. Some he could recall as he walked through the centre, others were long forgotten. Then he was there, looking up the street that had been his home for nearly 20 years. He realised he was gasping, unable to steady his breath. John Maxwell Street was special. It came back to him as he walked upwards towards his own house, number 88. The fish and chip shop was open and he considered buying something before realising he didn't have the right kind of money, the old four old pence needed for a packet of chips. He walked on past the greengrocers, the pork butchers, two sweet shops side by side. He could make out the old chapel building, a light for some evening service. He was there. He was back home, back 58 years ago. Daniel huddled in the doorway of the grocery shop, staring in amazement at the building opposite. Two flats. His gran lived downstairs, his family upstairs, mam, dad and his two brothers. But no, there would be three brothers crowded in that tiny flat, because his ten-year-old younger self would be there. He couldn't knock on the door. What would he say? How would he explain? He couldn't even explain it to himself. But there was one possibility. His gran. She'd never recognise him. He could go round the back, knock on the door, shout, It's just me, an army friend of Joe's. His dead granddad, killed in the war before he was born. It was odd sitting with his gran, tears rolling down his cheeks, while she chatted on, as she always did, before everything became too much for her. 
She never told anybody what the problem was. Our Lizzie's expecting again, never explained the night terrors. Our Danny was in earlier, fighting with his big brother, big bully that one, and the little one crying all the time, eh, their mother's a dead loss. How she'd never got over her husband and elder son dying in the war. But he could help her now, get someone in to talk about stuff. But of course, that was then, and then had been and gone. And on that day, five days before Christmas, she killed herself. She couldn't cope. But that was then. And this was just... when? There was a bang on the door. It knocked away these sad thoughts. Here he is again. He sat, dumbfounded, as his ten-year-old self walked in. Gave him a quick look and then said to Gran, Granny, can I make a sandwich? You're going to have to stand up to your brother. He's a bully. Thump him back. That right, isn't it, Mr... Mr... I've got to go. Daniel stood, legs shaking. This couldn't be happening. The little boy, Pim, stopped making the sandwich, turned to him and smiled, winked, and then carried on spreading too much jam on the two thin slices of bread. Daniel was ten minutes late getting back to the ghost train. He couldn't answer any of Ron's questions. He couldn't speak. Just kept shaking his head as they reached the front of the queue. Had a hell of a job the first time. I had to go back to my sister's house and borrow some old money. Said I, I was a distant relative. <laughs> You're in shock. We'll talk about it later, okay? The car moved smoothly forwards into the darkness of the ghostly journey and shortly afterwards bumped back into reality. And Dan felt a loss that, in all the trials and tribulations of his long life, he'd never experienced before. Daniel was walking along Sea Road again, the 2020 version, trying to remember what had been there just a few hours before. He walked silently with Ron until they reached the first pub, and settled down with their drinks, facing each other. How? asked Daniel. How does it work? Well, I've read loads about it. Well, there's the mind over matter idea, using the 95% of our brain power that's never been touched. There's an idea that every second in time exists in different universes. Oh, and the wormhole... Black hole business of bending time backwards. There's machines using quantum physics. I guess we shouldn't forget the Almighty. He can do anything from the beginning to the end. String theory, travelling backwards at the speed of light, uh, getting caught up in a time doughnut, negative energy, dark matter, auto-suggestion where you create a false reality and live in it. Why, there's even Superman flying backwards. <laughs> the list goes on and on. Uh, and you shouldn't forget... The whole load of books and films where they don't even bother to tell you how. It just is. But if you ask me, and you are, it's a longing that builds up in your mind that takes you there. Uh, so I guess I don't really know. The ghost train, Larry. You, you bought it. You must have had some idea when you did that. <clears throat> I, I think we operate at different levels. What we think we know and do 
And what we do without thinking, without knowing how or why, that, that sounds rubbish. When I was young, I was queuing to get on the ghost train. There was this girl with her friends. They wouldn't get on. They were giggling and laughing, pretending to be terrified at the idea of getting on the train. Never mind being on it. Then suddenly she was next to me. <laughs> this, this beautiful girl. And I was in love. Well, by the end of the ride. I'm older than you. I, I walked her home. Man, she was pretty, really pretty, bright, clever, funny and, well, I was besotted. Then what happened? We were to meet. I was going to tell her that I wanted to build my whole life, my whole world around her. <laughs> she didn't turn up. I got on the train to hide my sadness. When I came out the other end, her friends were there. She was dead. An aneurysm. But you never forgot. Not for a day. Then you started up with all this memory business. Then you had all them photos, then the group, and I, I could feel this thing inside of me. I found the old ghost train, and well, that was it. Got it working. I sat in the car, and it trundled off. Somewhere inside, it stopped. Oh, I was so sad. And suddenly, it, it felt different. The car began to move, and out I popped into the old world. And she was there. But you were... How? I know, three times her age. I could just look. Every night go and look at the pair of us. Ah, that does it for me. But it didn't do it for Daniel. Together with Ron, he returned back to 1962 at least three times each week. He had met his family, chatted to them even. As with his granny, he introduced himself as an old friend of Gran's husband visiting from London. They accepted the story. They accepted him. Despite warnings from Ron, though he could never understand where these warnings came from, he spent whole days in his old hometown. He would wander the streets and back lanes, take pictures on his phone of the characters, some he remembered, many he'd forgotten. The chilly days of October and November were thrilling, and there were times when he'd plan how he could actually live here. But as time passed, he realised that his joy of being back in time was accentuated by being able to move from his own time to his childhood time. He sat with his gran and began to understand her problems, her loneliness and sadness. She would talk constantly about her husband, about her son, about the Germans and the Japanese and how they were coming for her. And he could see she needed help. I hear them at night climbing over the back wall and then I hide till the morning. They've not found me yet, but they will one day. As the weather turned cold and the December days drew shorter and shorter, he knew she was becoming more anxious. He knew she was reaching the end of her ability to cope. She was preparing to die. But he also knew it was a death that could be avoided. Avoided and, and then he would begin to get her the help she needed to live a life again with hope for the future. He remembered as a child finding the death certificate. His gran killed herself on the 21st of December 1962 by coal gas poisoning 
while the balance of her mind was disturbed. Only Daniel decided she wouldn't. He knew roughly when she did it. It must have happened in the morning. He was home from school when his father went downstairs and found her. It was the day of his school Christmas party. He smiled, remembering that his mother still made him go back to school. Ron was unhappy about just how involved Daniel had become, but accepted that he had introduced Daniel to his old world and that he had a responsibility to go back with him. And, of course, he enjoyed his time with Sandra, having borrowed Daniel's idea about a returning relative from the South. On the morning of the 21st of December, Daniel entered his grand's house by the back stairs. He crept upstairs and watched as she prepared her final moments. She washed the dishes, cleaned around the small flat. She even applied a little cologne. It was as she rolled a towel to stuff under the door that he entered and stopped her. They talked through the morning until Daniel eventually convinced her that she should not end her life, that she had a future that he had plans for them both, that together they would cure her of her loss and pain. Reluctantly, he admitted to himself, she agreed to give it another go. What do you mean? You don't feel well, said Ron. Well, ever since, ever since, repeated Ron. And then he knew. He knew what Daniel had done. Of course, you said, you told me right at the beginning, she killed herself. My God, you stopped her. I had to. I knew I could help her. But I warned you. I said we could look, talk even, be friends. But we couldn't change things. Changing what happened, what she wanted to do, well, is making me ill. It's doing something. You don't know what saving a meant means. It it could be really big. Oh, don't be daft. What could she do? She was an old woman. She wouldn't start a war, an uprising, anything serious. And I'm going back to help her more. I remember she hated New Year. I'm going back to be with her then. To eat mince pies at 12 o'clock and drink nasty sherry. To get her to go upstairs and see us all. To be happy. Done. Listen to me. Yeah, go back. But you have to tell her, to let her kill herself. I couldn't do that. Something's happening to you. It could be happening to hundreds of people. Serious things could be happening. You've got to put it right, said Ron. I'll go back. I'll go back. I'll see what's happening. Believe me, I'll make it better. I'll make make it all right, honest. Daniel went back to December the 31st, 1962. But later than he'd hoped. He'd been held up when his older brother had called round with his grandkids, wanted Dan to join the family, while meeting at the social club. Whole family would be there. Aunties, uncles, kids, grandkids, cousins. He can't miss it. Dan explained he had something important to do, but he'd pop in later. By the time they'd left, it had gone ten. Still time to get there. More than enough time. He took the car 
who was at the ghost train by half ten. Plenty of time, he thought. John Maxwell Street, eleven o'clock. The sound of music, parties, laughter reverberating along the length of the street. A crowd had gathered round his family's homes. There was shouting, someone banging at Gran's door. Then he could smell it. Smoke. And mixing with the usual smog of belching open fires, a stronger smell, something different, something dangerous. In the distance, the sound of the fire brigade. He knew what she'd done. It merely postponed the inevitable. That she would continue to find her life unbearable and end it. The loneliness intensified by the occasion. A postponement of the inevitable, not a cure, not a hope in hell. The scene we played a week behind schedule. The small flat tidied, the dishes done, a tiny drop of cologne behind her ear. The gas taps on full. But one little but significant difference. A final cigarette, then the striking of a match. Dan avoided the crowd at the front of the house, powerless to do anything other than watch the flames licking around the doors and windows. He ran to the back, to the small yard, to the door, stairs leading up to his family home, horrified at the fire raging below. Opening the door, a blast of heat almost knocked him off his feet. But he had to get up there. He had to save his family. He marvelled at the noise that a raging fire can make but his terror was overcome by his need to save his loved ones. The heat and smoke knocked him to his knees, making him crawl up the remaining stairs to the small landing. The door at the top was shut. A door leading to the small bedroom where he and his brothers crammed into a double and single bed. Hopeless, it was hopeless. The smell, the heat, the smoke, the certainty of death. He heard a wailing noise, pitiful. He heard himself crying against the horror behind the door. But still he moved on. Still he had to try. He hit the door hard, hands burning, the smell of his own damaged flesh. He shouldered the door, shifting the weight behind, reaching round and feeling the body blocking his chance to help. But still he pushed harder, moving the body inch by inch, until on his knees he grabbed the small child, dragging him round the door as the roof to the bedroom collapsed and hope of saving anyone else in that inferno was lost. Holding the small body, he slipped and fell back down the stairs, gasping, desperate for clean air, desperate to get the child into safety. And then he was in the backyard, looking down at his younger self. Then the door into the yard burst open, bodies surrounding him, noise, hose pipes, spraying water. Then he was pushed to one side, he watched medical staff move the body, working on his young body, feeling at one with the pain and damage it was feeling, breathing life-giving oxygen, feeling slowly the pain he felt for days lifting, slowly leaving his body, knowing he was saved, his young self was saved. Exhausted, he made his final trip on the ghost train, confused and concerned about what had happened about what he had changed. Daniel woke to a new day and a new life. It would take a little more than a few moments for the full nightmare to be revealed. His immediate family no longer existed. They died in the flames. 
his brother's grandchildren he adored, the nephews and nieces. None of them existed. The happy memories of a good life eradicated. A lonely life replaced him. A life created from a tragic incident 50 years earlier when a family died, with only one survivor, a young 10-year-old boy called Daniel. But a life Daniel could not bear. It was a life he had created because he'd been so very eager to have the time of his life. I hope you enjoyed that story. It's a quirky story from a series which you can get by searching for Quirky Story on whichever app you use to access your podcasts. If you'd like to write to me about that story or indeed any of the stories in the series, then please do so at quirkystory at hotmail.com. Quirky Story, all one word, K-W-E-R-K-Y-S-T-O-R-Y. If you have any comments, any thoughts on the story, or if you'd like to make any suggestions for future stories, then please do. So please look out for the next story in the Quirky Story series. <laughs>